you may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. I'm a heaven for the last round of This is Dean Martin, alias Matt Helm. Uh, I wanted to play Hamlet, but they talked me out of it. I'm asking you to help me uh, stamp out spies. Or at least muss them up a little. Like Santa Burger. Skull. Shirt skull's got ice in it. Tina Louise. I'm a gypsy, Mr. Hale. My father was a gypsy. And he taught us one thing. Wise men enjoy pleasure before business. Uh, I like your father's thinking. Whatever love is. Lucky Summers. I thought you wanted to talk. Why can't that wait? I always prefer pleasure before business. Hmm. I bet your father was a wise old gypsy. And uh, I have been in a lot of foursomes in my day, but these girls, they have a stance, a grip, and a swing all their own. And right now, I'm going to hit a ball right into you, so watch yourself throw her. Anyway, I'm happy to be here. In our new picture of the ambushers, I got my hands full with Mataharas and spies. Too much for one mad helm, so how about pitching in a little, huh? Take off your shoes, don't fight. Lean back, relax, 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 relax. Huh? Do I look like an enemy agent? Well, I don't know. I haven't seen all the latest models yet. Like old times. What happens when the maid walks in, in the morning? Let's put her in my bed so we don't arouse suspicion. There's enough action for everybody, so bring your friends and we'll make them honorary ambushers. We can't send in a task force. It's got to be a one-man job. Uh, let me guess who you got in mind. The explosion will raise a cloud of radioactive dust that will settle over vast areas of the southwest. Miss Craven? Mr. Helm, huh? would you please call me by my first name? Well, I don't know your first name. It's Lovey. Lovey Craves it? 
Oh, that's some kind of name. <laughs> They're the ambushers. They're the ambushers. I'm gonna see this picture myself. Set the way back machine. Yes, sir, Mr. Peabody. Hi, everybody. This is Tommy James reminding you you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. So tune in. Welcome, you're tuned in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers and Google Tantalk1340.com, and you can hear us live in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website, GulfstreamMotorsports.com, where you can find out all about us. And if you missed any of our past shows, go to NostalgicRadioandCars.com. Good evening, Matt. How are you doing? Uh, sorry, I am doing fantastic, sir. How about you? Oh, well, I'm uh, stashed away here in this little bunker and uh, somewhere in the middle of Florida someplace, you know, my hiding spot. Uh, but anyway, so uh, welcome, welcome, me welcome myself back to Florida. I was uh, in uh, Rhode Island over the weekend. I, If you recall, we had uh, Donald Osborne on our show last week, and we were talking about the Audrain Newport Concourse and Motor Week. I got it right. You know why? Because I read the sign probably a thousand times, so it's embedded in my memory this time. So anyway, it was a spectacular event. Um, what was really cool about it, it was in Newport, Rhode Island. I flew into the Providence and uh, drove down to Newport. It's about an hour drive. On my way there, and I will tell you more about the story a little bit later, but because we have a special guest coming on tonight, we have a really, really good show. But anyway, so I stopped by Tasca Ford. You know, any self-respecting Ford guy would stop by Tasca Ford, which is in Providence, Rhode Island, which is you know kind of like the, the birthplace of the 428 Cobra Jet. But nonetheless, then I got to uh, Newport, Rhode Island. Uh, showed up at the uh, Tennis Hall of Fame, International Tennis Hall of Fame there, and that's where the event took place. And then, of course, the Breakers, which is the home, the summer home of the Vanderbilts, is where the concourse took place. So uh, there was a number of people I met there. Jay Leno was there. Uh, Wayne Carini was there. Judy Stropas was there. Lynn St. James was there. Jeff Foose was there. Um, and Robert Herzevic, if you ever watched the Shark Tank, he was there. So I had an opportunity to talk to him a little bit, too. Anyway. Without further ado, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, – I'm just going to run by some of the events that are coming up. we got the Barber Motorsports Festival, Motorcycle Festival going on starting this week, commencing this week. Uh, we also have Cruising the Coast. That's also starts this week. And then uh, next week, we've got uh, the Chattanooga Motorcar Festival. And then the week after that, we have the awesome Dawsonville – uh, Moonshine Festival, and then the week after that we've got uh, SEMA, and then a couple weeks after that we have uh, the Muzzle Car and Corvette Nationals in Illinois. Not sure what I'm scheduled to do, where I can go, you know, all that good stuff. But anyway, I'm gonna try. I got I got them on my radar. Um, we'll see what happens here. We'll play that with here. But anyway, so we got a uh, a musical guest coming on this evening. So without further ado, I think what uh, Tommy or what uh, Matt's going to do is fire. Why don't you go ahead and play? Uh, uh, this is a song that was actually requested by one of our listeners, and uh, this, the title of the song, which was done by Tommy Rowe back in the day, is "Baby I Love You." So we're going to play that, and then we're going to come back. Then I'm going to blab it for a second or two, and then we're going to bring our guests on. So you tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't touch that dial. Here's a little Tommy Rowe from back in the 60s. Baby, I love you. We'll be right back. Thank you.
went out to my uh, my good friend Mike. We probably should have played a little bit more of that. But anyway, um, so hopefully you guys are uh, following us on our social media pages and everything like that. And uh, like I said, there's a number of events coming up this time of year. There's just tons and tons and tons and tons of stuff. But if you want to find out where all the, the local events are taking place in the state of Florida, definitely check out uh, FLACarshows.com. Um, let's see. we got the Palm Beach concourse that's coming up. And then I just noticed today on the uh, on that interweb thing that uh, in on December 3rd over in Orlando, the in the Windermere area they're actually going to do a collective car show and concourse as well so there's just a lot of really cool car shows now one of the comments that uh, one of the there was a number of seminars that took place up there in, in, in rhode island which is something i always enjoy and they had there was a gentleman up there by the name of perry margaloff and he's a writer songwriter producer and he's also a car collector and also a big guitar guy and we talked for a bit, and then obviously um, Bill Warner was up there from Amelia Island with Judy Stropus, and they had a seminar on Cannonball, Cannonball Run. Then they had the uh, head of global design for Cadillac, and he talked about where Cadillac's going in the next uh, three to five years with their electric vehicles and so on. And then they had some of their prototype cars there. And then, of course, uh, uh, the seminar, which was titled Car Sharks, which was um, Jay Leno and uh, Robert Herjavec. But Earlier in the sh- in the in one of the seminars, um, there was with Jay Leno and 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 uh, um, Donald Osborne. He mentioned something about a lot of these car shows, and he says one of the things that's happening with these car shows and the cars and coffees is what this is. This is kind of like the uh, a, a revolution, if you will, in the in the automobile industry because what's ha- or in the collector car world because this is. Uh, uh, the younger generation really digs. I'm gonna use the word digs. That's kind of a, a groovy term out of the '60s. Um, these car events because you show up early in the morning, you hang out for two, three hours, and then you're gone. Now the concours, what makes these so special is because they attract very, very unique and very, very, very special cars. Okay, so people don't mind hanging out for the whole day, and it's very competitive. Your casual car shows, they're still out there. But the younger generation is really not attracted to it. And the goal right now is obviously is to try to get a younger group of people very much interested in, in the cars. And, of course, right now, you know, there is a generational shift going on. And it's basically, you know, the 80s, 90s, and 2000 cars. Now, granted, it, you know, us old, old guys, you know, I'm a still 50s, 60s, 70s car guy. But, you know, I, I do like some of the newer stuff. But that's not my cup of tea, so to speak. But. Having said that, you know, it's just like no different than when I was into 60s, 70s cars. There was a lot of guys that were in the pre-war classics and heavy American classics and, and cars of that, uh, of that uh, era. And uh, so this is kind of cool. But all this does is these cars and coffees, and there's a huge one and uh, down in Sarasota, and it's the second Saturday of every month, and I believe that would be two weeks. And um, that is at the uh, – uh, University Town Center, Bobby, am I correct on that? University Town Center in Sarasota. And I was amazed at how many cars there. Now, Mike, one of my listeners, who we played the song for, um, goes down there with his Porsche every once in a while, and we, we kind of tag along. And the the, the, the turnout's totally eclectic. You got vintage, you got classics, you got uh, muscle cars, you got supercars, you got uh, hypercars, you got uh, pickup trucks, you got everything down there, you know, uh, including motorcycles. So that's kind of like uh, the the trend. 
And so the cars and coffees, you know, they're really cool because, you know, everybody just kind of hangs out. I mean, they're really, really big in South Florida. There's one that takes place down at the West Palm Beach uh, Mall down there. And the last time I was there, which was a number of years ago, there was close to 4,000 cars that showed up, 4,000 cars in the parking lot. There were so many cars that the shopping center wasn't exactly real thrilled about it. And they basically said, you know what, we'll, we'll do this early in the morning. We'll do this maybe a few more times, but uh, you might be looking for another place because it took up a lot of parking spots. You know, and of course, the mall opens at 10 because this is generally on a Sunday. But nonetheless, that's kind of where that's going now. Having said all that and blah, 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 I think it's time to get our guests on the show. So what we're going to do is we're going to play uh, this gentleman's probably his gold record number. Well, one of many gold records that he had. Um, this is one of his top hits out of 1969. And I remember this one very well because it's one of the first songs that I, me, why, ever danced to. So uh, you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio Cars, and then we're going to play Dizzy by Tommy Rowe. Don't touch that doll. We'll be right back. And you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. So, turn your radio on. Okay, we're back, and you're tuned into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and I'm time, it's time to introduce our very special guest for this evening. This gentleman has had a number of hits between 1963 and 1969 to the tune of six top ten hits. He's a gold record recording artist, songwriter, musician. I'm delighted to welcome to the show the very, very talented and a good old Southern boy, Tommy Rowe. Tommy, how are you doing this evening? I'm doing great, Robert. Good to be with you. So I had a, one of my listeners, because I, I text back and forth and let everybody know what's going on in the show. So one of my listeners wanted me to uh, play and also talk, 
have you talk about the song Baby I Love You. So what was the premise for that song? We'll start with that one because we'll go into a whole bunch of other ones. But So Mike's listening to this show. This goes out to Mike. So tell me, tell us a story about Baby I Love You. Uh, Baby I Love You is a cover um, that was originally recorded by, I think Andy Kim originally recorded the song. Oh, really? And uh, Yeah, and uh, so I covered the song. It was kind of a bubblegum-oriented song, and I did that in, in like the uh, 60s. I covered it, and it was just used in a movie uh, called, uh, uh, what's the movie? It's uh Hard Times at the El Royale, I think is the title of the movie. So it was a, a, a used as one of the songs in that movie. Interesting, interesting. All right, so give us, uh, let's go back to the late 50s. Who was, who was real influential in your life as far as music and what got you going? Now, if I remember correctly, you kind of come from a musical family, right? Well, my dad played guitar and my mom played uh, keyboard, played piano in the church. So I, I did... I was raised around music. My grandfather was a great banjo player. I remember he used to sit out on the front porch and play banjo, and I, I would sit at the at the bottom of on the floor at the bottom of his feet and just listen to him all day play banjo. But um, yeah, so you know, musical family, and um, so that kind of got me inspired. To um, my dad taught me three chords on the guitar, and that uh, got me started writing songs. So it was uh, just, I guess, meant to be. What part of Atlanta? Uh, you're from the Atlanta area, correct? Yeah, I was born in Atlanta. Uh, went to school, high school here, and um, kind of, you know, my family is all. I have a big family here: cousins, nephews, aunts, and uncles. And I have uh, my daughter lives here, and I have three grandchildren who live here. Interesting. And um, one of the other things I was going to ask you is, okay, so when you, when you, and I was listening to one of the other interviews and I was reading up a little bit and I, and, and you started writing songs like when you were in high school and a lot of them evolved out of uh, kind of poetry a little bit. Well, yeah, it's kind of funny how I got started. I, I used to chase this little girl around the playground. Her name was Frida and I, I was writing little poems at the time, and I, I thought, yeah, I'm going to write a poem for Frida. So I wrote this poem called Sweet Little Frida. And um, that's, the, that's the poem that morphed into my, hit, my first hit record, Sheila. Uh, the interesting thing is that I never got to present the poem to Frida. She kind of, she moved out of the neighborhood, and I just, I never saw her again, you know. So the, the poem turned into Sheila. I recorded it uh, locally in Atlanta, uh, Back in the while I was still in high school, actually, with my uh, high school band, and uh, it was kind of a hit around the southeast. Didn't really do much, and then later on, I met uh, Felton Jarvis, who was um, who wanted to be a record producer, and he talked me into re-recording Sheila, and that's how it all happened. He took me to Nashville, we re-recorded. We we changed the title, of course. The first guy that that heard the song Frida, he didn't like the title, so he said, you got to change the title. So it just so happened that my Aunt Sheila was visiting that weekend, so we, we called it Sheila. <laughs> oh, okay. So there's a direct uh, connection there. Interesting, interesting. What was it like for you when you were young and, you, uh, and, and, and going to a recording studio, recording the song, and I mean, did you have, um, what were, you, were your parents involved? Did you have, I mean, was it, uh, you know, you know, like the, the legal issues that, that that you have to deal with and permissions and things like that. I mean, you were you were still a teenager, right? 
Yeah, I was in high school when I had, you know, I put the band together. It was called Tommy Rowe and the Satins. So we used to play Georgia Tech fraternity parties and University of Georgia fraternity parties. And actually, we'd play anywhere they let us set up and play. <laughs> I remember we opened for a record store one time in West End, and we set up out on the sidewalk and, <laughs> and played out there. So we would play anywhere anybody would let us. But, uh, yeah, that was just a fun time. You know, originally, my songwriting and my singing and the band and the whole thing was just really a hobby. I mean, I never really thought about making anything out of it. And and what really uh, made it happen for me was my ability to write songs. Because uh, Sheila, of course, was one of the first hits. I well, was the first big hit I had. And that was the song that I wrote when I was 14 years old. So just one thing led to another. And I just kind of, uh, you know, bounced off of Sheila and we recorded some more songs. Everybody became a big hit after that. And then... Um, then I moved out to California from Atlanta, and that's when I, uh, uh, Dick Clark called my manager and asked if I would come out to California and be a regular on his show called Where the Action Is. And uh, so that sounded exciting to me, so I went out to California. I was supposed to just stay there for a few months, and they ended up staying there for a long time. I ended up buying a house and, and staying in California. But um, that's kind of how it happened to me. It's just a springboard from Sheila. Onto other things. Now, all the while while you were doing this, I mean, did you did you have to go through, like you know, you'll hear a lot of musicians talk about. Well, when I was younger, you know, I wrote this song, I had this record, I got it recorded, and I had to go sneak into the radio station, slip the guy a few dollars, and try to get him to play my song. And uh, did you have to go through any of that stuff, or was it a little bit easier for you? Well, at that time, I didn't have any dollars to slip. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So that was all left up to to people that were handling me if they if they did that. But of, of course, when I recorded my songs, I would go to radio stations to promote them. I, I remember being on the road one time with my band. We used to drive in a car and pull a trailer behind the car. We'd go from you know to Alabama. We played University of Alabama fraternity parties, stuff like that. And we would stop along the way if we saw a radio a tower. You know, we'd pull into the radio station and promote our records. You know. So it was kind of uh, very spontaneous back in those days and really seat of the pants. I mean, there was no real real uh, schedule or any, any... In other words, we didn't really have anything to, to relate to before because uh, it was all new to us, you know, and spontaneous. So um, we just did... We, it was fun. I mean, we just made uh, a good time out of it. We met a lot of interesting people, met DJs, you know, in the radio station, and they were they were always very receptive to us coming in. We were probably a, a kind of a scraggly looking crew, you know. Anyway, so they got a kick out of it. Did you um, so like back in the day? And this is why I'm real curious because I'm just trying to do a a, a, a a comparison with some of the other um, artists I've had on the show. So when you signed, you were relatively young, so you're a teenager, obviously, and then you had these agreements. Did you was it? Did you get um, you know royalties, and were you covered back then, or did you just totally rely on the managers, and did you have good people that you worked with that looked out for your best interests? Well, I, I always say I was very fortunate. I, I was managed by Bill Lowry, who was kind of a, a guy here in Atlanta who made things happen for young artists. And um, he was uh, – what happened is originally Felton Jarvis was my producer – and Felton and Bill started a publishing company called Nighttime Music. It, it turned it, later on. It turned into Low Twine Music, 
And so Felton wanted to move to Nashville, and he wanted to sell his half of the publishing company. So Bill suggested I buy half the publishing company. So I bought it from Felton, and I ended up owning half the publishing on all my songs. So I was very fortunate because I know a lot of the young entertainers back during that time got screwed out of the royalties, and you know they lost a lot of money. But I think I was very fortunate that I I was managed by somebody was honest and really actually bill was like my second father i mean he we had a great relationship and um it turned out very well for me financially very good now you also have a uh, ray stevens connection because ray was on our show uh last year sometime so uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, ray stevens connection well ray also started with bill lowry he he was uh, one of bill's acts and a few of the first hits, like Ahab the Arab, and some of those early hits of Ray's were recorded in Atlanta in Bill's studio. So I I met Ray very early on. Ray used to perform at a at a venue here in Atlanta called, uh, I think it was called, uh, I forgot the name. I was kind of a rock and roll, rock, actually it's kind of a rockabilly show. And it was called the East, the East Side Auditorium. And... Um, Ray would perform there along with Joe Sal. Uh, Chip Young used to perform there. A lot of the local entertainers, and when I, while I was still in high school, I was a big fan of all these guys. So I'd go to these shows and watch, you know, watch them perform. So, and then uh, when I hooked up with Bill Lowry as my manager, Bill was already managing Ray, and that's when I first met Ray. And um, Ray actually. Uh, arranged my first album after Sheila was the hit. Uh, we cut an album in in uh, Nashville. It was called Tommy Rose Sheila, and Ray was the, the arranger of that album. So um, we go back a long way. He's a great guy, great entertainer. I mean, he's just a. I, he called me and asked me if I'd like to do his show cabaret, and I said, "Are you kidding me? Anything Ray's involved in, I, I want to be part of it." So uh, he, he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Um, talk about recording studios. One that pops up, and I know you've done some songs there too, is uh, Muscle Shoals. So tell us a little bit about Muscle Shoals, because there's a lot of very famous people and musicians that went there and recorded there. And what was the attraction of Muscle Shoals? Because it was really, it's it's kind of like northeast Alabama, or northwest Alabama. Right. And at that time, it was uh, when they, it's funny, because I, I, I came back from England after my tour over there. And uh, Felton said, we're going to record in Muscle Shoals. What well, I had been recording in Nashville up at that point. And I said, Muscle Shoals, where's that? He said, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. There's a studio over there. And, and Bill, your manager, has uh, has a, um, a friend named Rick Hall. And he has a great studio. And he wants to take you over there and record. So we went over. That was, That's where I recorded everybody. And everybody was actually the first big hit cut in Muscle Shoals. Uh, Arthur Alexander had cut You Better Move On, but it wasn't recorded at Fame Studios. It was recorded at another studio. And um, so we went over there and recorded. I thought, you know, and when I went up, when I went to the studio, it was nothing like Nashville. I mean, Nashville, I recorded RCA Victory, those studio where Elvis recorded, you know, really a nice studio. And the the Fame Recording Studio just looks like a barn out in the middle of nowhere, you know. And I walked in the studio, and, and for sound barriers in the studio, Rick Hall had put egg egg crates on the walls as sound barriers. So 
So, I mean, it was quite a, I thought it was quite a step down, you know, as far as recording, but Rick Hall was a genius. I mean, we recorded everybody to quarter inch tape. There was no two track, three track, four track. You had no choice. You had to, you recorded live in the studio. And when, what went on that quarter track tape was your master. And Rick was mixing and mastering all at the same time as we recorded. It was just an amazing situation. Later on, of course, you know, they got four track, eight track, and 16 track. When, when they recorded all the R&B acts in there, you know, Ruth Franklin and all these people, they had great equipment. But when I recorded there, it was just really basic, very basic. And I was amazed that the sound we got on everybody, everybody became my next big hit after Sheila went to number three of Billboard. Wow, that's, an, that's a great story. Uh, you mentioned coming back from Britain on a tour over there. So uh, you were over there with, uh, um, was it Chris Mike? Mon- yeah, Chris, Mon- Chris Montez. Well, see, in 19, Sheila was a hit in 1962, and one right. of the first tours I did was with Sam Cooke. And okay. uh, it, was a, it was an all-black troupe, and it was me and Chris were on that tour. So that's where I met Chris. And it was kind of, that tour was really fantastic because it was such a, a learning experience for me. Sam Cooke was an unbelievably tremendous entertainer, and just watching him perform really is how I learned to to deal with the audience and to do what I did in the future. But uh, we traveled through the South, and I remember when we first got on the bus, all the black artists called me the token Fay and they called Chris Mr. In-Between. Chris was Mexican, so he was kind of <laughs> chocolate-colored, you know, so he called him Mr. In-Between. But we had a lot of fun on that tour, and it was all, uh, they were they were ter- tremendous acts to work with. Smokey Robinson and the River, uh and the Miracles were on that tour. Jerry Butler and uh, his his group was on the tour. A lot of great black artists, which I, you know, I listened to on the radio when I was a kid. And I thought, wow, I'm on tour with all these great artists, you know. But so I met Chris on this tour. And then our agent decided that he would book Chris and I on a tour in England. So he booked us uh, in England to do a tour in 1963. And um, we went over, I flew over and met Chris there and uh, on that tour was a featured act called the Beatles. <laughs> and they, they were like our opening act, you know, and uh, nobody at that time in 1963, nobody knew who the Beatles were. And um, so in, in fact, when I first met John, he came in to, to, we had like a meeting before the show and he came in, introduced himself and he said, you know, I'm John Lennon. And said, you know, we do your song Sheila on our show. We've been singing it at the Star Club in Hamburg, Germany. And I said, oh, great, man. I appreciate that. He said, but you know something? I think we're, I don't think we're playing it properly. I don't think we're doing it right. I said, well, how are you doing it? He picked up his acoustic guitar and started playing it. Sure enough, they had the chords backwards. He was playing A-D-E, and it should be A-E-D, you know? So I said, you're right. You're, you just got the chords flipped. You, you know, play it's A E D, not A D E. And uh, he laughed. He said, "I knew we were doing something wrong." And then later on, I heard this crude recording of them doing Sheila in the Star Club. It's out there, kind of a bootleg recording out out in the stratosphere out there somewhere. And uh, you can hear it. I think George is singing it, but it sounds like they're just playing all the chords are all over the place. But you know, you can tell it's my song, Sheila. <laughs> so 
now I didn't. I, I I heard this a long time ago, but actually, while I was doing my research, um, I realized and that and you can and you can elaborate on the story. So how did that all work out? Because, like you said, you went over there, you and Chris, and the Beatles at that time were the opening act. And then tell us what happened. And then also, there's a little uh, Roy Orbison connection there too, right? Well, what happened is. The, the first night of the concert, the Beatles were just, their fan base was just catching on. They were just catching on and oh, over in England. And their fan base was so huge at the venues, they would come to the venues, and they created such chaos because of, it was like Elvis Presley when he first started. You know, the, the girls went crazy and the, everybody went, you know, wild over their music. Well, that's what happened with the Beatles, Beatles on our tour. And so... You couldn't follow them. I mean, it, the the show just shut down after the Beatles were on. So I mean, you had to. We had to do something to make the show work. So the the promoter of the show said, "You know, we have to do something to make the show work." I, so we decided to let the Beatles close the first half of the show. I think originally I was closing the first half, and uh, the Beatles were opening before me. And uh, they anyway they changed the show around to where it worked better. And eventually they ended up closing the show because of their fan base just following them around from venue to venue. You know, I've always said, you know, our tour, our tour that we did in England with Chris, Chris and I was really the launching pad for the Beatles career. Because after that tour, the only other act they opened for was Roy Orbison. And Roy had to relinquish the closing spot just as we did because he couldn't follow the Beatles. So, you know, from our tour, the Aurora Orchid's tour, and then they came over in 1964 and did the Ed Sullivan show, and they called my manager. They were doing a show after the Ed Sullivan show in Washington, D.C. on uh, February 11th, I think it was, in 1964, and uh, they called my manager and asked if I would open for them in Washington, D.C., and I said, of course, I'd love to open for the Beatles, which I did, and you know, so I opened for the first uh, Beatle concert in, in the United States in 1964. What's the story about uh, you were playing the guitar that belonged to John Lennon, and uh, there was a song that came out of that? Tell us that story as well. Well, that was everybody. I wrote everybody on that tour, and um, John used to let me borrow his uh, Gibson guitar, which is what's very interesting is a few years ago, I think a couple of years ago, this Gibson guitar that I used to write songs on this tour just sold at auction for like a million two hundred thousand dollars so i like to joke with people i said well it's got to be worth at least 3.2 million now since everybody knows i wrote everybody on it <laughs> <laughs> well speaking but, uh, of go ahead go ahead but i you know i wrote the song on the tour and then that's when i came back to the states and you know i i, I had uh developed a relationship with uh, Brian Epstein, the Beatles manager, and he and my manager were talking back and forth about Brian managing me in Europe because, you know, I had, Sheila was a big hit there, the folk singer was a big hit there, and I had a lot of uh, dates booked in Europe, so I needed representation in Europe. So they were discussing a partnership to manage me in Europe. And so um, when I left, the, when the tour ended in 1964 with the Beatles, Brian asked me if I would, uh, take a promotional pack back to the States and see if my label would be interested in signing the Beatles to a record deal. 
So I yeah, yeah, said, of course I would. So he gave me a little, actually it's just a NIMS plastic bag with an album in it and a bio and a few photos of the Beatles. And so I took that back with me after the tour. I took the Queen Elizabeth uh, back to New York. It was a, a five-day trip on the Atlantic. And so I arrived at, in New York at the docks, and Felton met me at the docks. I'd already been hyping Felton on the Beatles, how great they were. And I said, you know, they're just killing everybody over here. They're going to be a huge act. And so he had talked to the president of ABC Paramount Records about signing this group that I found in England. So he meets me at the docks. We go right to the president's office at ABC Paramount on Broadway. And I was I got my bags and my guitar and everything. I don't even go to the hotel first. We're so excited about presenting the Beatles to ABC Records. And so we go in and they congratulate me on the tour. They understand your tour went great. And the records are selling great over there. And Felson tells us you have an act that you'd like for us to consider signing to the label. I said, yeah. I, I did a tour with them in England. They were our feature feature act on our tour, and they're called the Beatles. When I when I said the Beatles, the room just got quiet because I'd never heard anything like the Beatles, you know. So <laughs> the, the the president of the label said, "Okay, well let let us see what you have there." And I had pulled out the album, and he took it out of the sleeve, put it on the turntable, dropped the needle on the first cut. I think it was "Love Me Do" was the first cut, or "Please Please Me," one, one of those songs. And he dropped the needle down, played a few bars. He picked up the needle. He, he says, Tommy, i got to tell you, that's the worst piece of crap I've ever heard in my life. Oh, <laughs> said, no. Please, said, please, let us be the talent scouts. Just, we got you a nice room over at the Waldorf. Go over there and write us some more hit songs and let us be the talent scouts. <laughs> bad, bad decision. <laughs> oh, man. So, but you know, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't the only label that turned them down. I mean, everybody turned them down. They had a, they had released uh, some early records on VJ records, uh, and they did nothing, you know, but here's, here's the deal. I always said to, to appreciate the Beatles during their early years, when they first started out, you had to see them because if you just heard their records without seeing them, their records were not really I mean, they were great, but they weren't that great. I mean, it was like something you'd hear and you'd say, yeah, that's nice. But once you saw them and put the image to the music, then that's what made it work for you. So when they came to the States, they did the Ed Sullivan show, and millions of people saw them on the Ed Sullivan show. And then they did that concert in Washington, D.C., and that was it. I mean, once you saw them and you put the music to the, to the image, it, it all worked, and they became, you know, gigantic stars. Oh, that's a very, very fascinating story. So, what happened? So, I guess the deal with Epstein didn't work out, then, did it? Well, he didn't. He didn't need to manage anybody else. I mean, after that, well, after the true. Beatles that's came true. to the states, I mean, you know, in fact, what's funny is when I look back on it, they didn't even need an opening act in Washington D.C. That's just the way we did things back in those days. You always had an opening act, and or maybe two or three acts, you know, before the main act came on stage. But they didn't need an opening act. But they, of course, after that show in Washington D.C., they realized that, and they never had an opening act after that. You know, they, the Beatles became Beatlemania took over and started pushing the American chart, uh, the American artists off the charts, and uh, the charts were filling up with British acts after that. Let's jump into uh, some of your songs. So, like. Uh, um Jam Up and Jelly Tight, 
Sweet Pea, <laughs> Dizzy. Uh, now, here's one. In 1969, I bought the record, the 45 uh, Dizzy. I was living in Europe at the time. I was going to a British school in Vienna, and my parents were in the motel business, so we traveled a lot. But anyway, so they sent me to this European school. Well, there was a lot of kids, and we were in seventh or eighth grade back then. Music was this. We're in Europe now, so you know the European bands are fairly popular, obviously. But then, in Europe, which was interesting, is they were fascinated with American bands. So your song, you know, not to mention "Yummy Yummy," "Chewy Chewy," "Sugar Sugar," all these bubblegum songs come uh, come out uh, come out at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Dizzy right. was the one that everybody liked. The flip side of that forty-five, which I still have, by the way, was the "You I Need." And I always right. like that song as well. But so you've got Jam Up Jelly Tight, Sweet Pea, Dizzy. Tell us the origins of some of those songs. You know, because they got Sweet Pea and, and Jam Up Jelly Tight. That's kind of like a southern connotation, doesn't it? Well, Sweet Pea happened because, uh, you know, after after I did the show with the Beatles in 1964, in February of 1964 in Washington, D.C., I, I had joined the Army Reserve. So that spring I went into, into boot camp. So the whole year of 1964, I was in the Army, and I, I was, you know, doing my training. And so while while I was in the Army, that's when the British invasion really happened in 1964. And all of these British acts were coming, like Jerry and the Pacemakers, uh, you know, Dave Clark and the five, five, the Dave Clark Five. All these British acts were just pushing the American acts off the charts. And I, I, so I'm, I'm in a foxhole somewhere in it's Sam Houston in South Carolina, and I mean in Texas, and I'm thinking, what the hell am I going to do when I get out of here to compete with all these guys? They're just taking over the charts. So that's when I came up with the idea to write something so different that the radio stations would it would appeal to the radio DJs to play it, and that's when I wrote Sweet Pea. I wrote Sweet Pea while I was in the army, and and I call it I call it soft rock. I said, I'm going to write everything else is kind of. You know, punchy, the British acts were doing really punchy, strong, strong songs. You know, with with heavy guitars and everything. I said, I'm going to do something really soft that's going to be so different they'll have to at least listen to it. So I wrote Sweet Pea, and as soon as I got out of the army, Felton had me booked to to do a session, and uh, we went out to California, and I I recorded Sweet Pea with Gary Paxton in in uh, Los Angeles, and um, it was originally I said, well. Maybe, I, I don't know if I want to release this. It sounded like a demo. So I thought, maybe I'll send it to somebody to record. So I sent it to Burt Burns, who had um, uh, the group that did Hang On Sloopy. I uh, forgot the name of that McCoy, group. The McCoys. The McCoys. The McCoys. So I thought, this would be a great song for the McCoys. So I sent it to Burt, and he, he handled the McCoys at the time, and they didn't record it. So I said, what the hell? I'll just put it out as my next single. And I put it, it was like a demo, and I said, I'll just put it out. And the record label agreed to it, and it became a huge hit. And so that started the bubblegum thing for me, and that's when they started calling him the king of bubblegum. And that record happened. It's funny how it happened because it, it was released during spring break, and it was number one on a radio station in Daytona Beach, Florida. And all the kids were in Florida spring break. And they heard this record, and they loved it. They were dancing in the, on the beaches to the record, and they, everywhere you went, you heard the record. So when they went back home to Canada, and the northeast and the upper Midwest, none of the radio stations were playing Sweet Pea. So all these kids started requesting it at the radio stations, and that's how the record broke. 
it, it was just really strange how it all happened. It took it took like six months for the record to break. But once it broke, it was like a, what's the number three in Billboard magazine. The origin for the movie, uh, for the song uh, Dizzy. Uh, Dizzy, that's kind of an interesting story. I was, uh, you know, I, I think I said earlier that I went out to California to be a regular on Dick Clark's Where the Action Is. And on that show was also a regular called Paul Revere and the Raiders. And so Paul came to me one day and said, you know, I've lost my guitar player. He just doesn't want to work with us anymore. And do you know anybody that might be interested in taking the gig? And I said, so I suggested he call my friend Freddie Weller in Atlanta. And Freddie was playing guitar with Billy Joe Royal at the time. And he was traveling with him doing, doing dates, doing concerts. And so anyway, Paul got in touch with Freddie and Freddie flew out to Los Angeles and auditioned for the gig. And, um, Paul hired him. He, he loved him. And he said he worked perfect, you know, for, for the Raiders. So we were doing a lot of Dick Clark tours at the time, bus tours all over the United States. And Paul was one of the acts. I was one of the acts. We'd had several acts on the show. And so as we would travel from gig to gig, Freddie and I started writing songs together. And Dizzy was the first song we wrote. And we started writing it on this bus tour. And um, so, and then we ended up writing jam up jelly tight we wrote together and i wrote several country songs with freddie which freddie freddie was doing country he was on columbia records doing country records and country music and uh, he recorded several of our country songs which did very well in the charts as well so it just uh kind of fate you know it pulled us together and we started writing songs and we just seemed to click as, as a team you also, uh, and then later, because you mentioned something about, you know, you're, so you're the bubblegum king. So did did that stereotype bother you a little bit? Because sometimes when you get kind of roped into a stereotype, then it kind of, uh, it'll, it'll kind of affect your career a little bit, because particularly if you want to kind of like think outside the box. So I know later you wrote, you you collaborated with some other um, uh, writers, songwriters, Mac Davis being one of them. Tell us a little bit uh, about your connection with Mac Davis. Yeah, the the, the uh, stereotype of pigeonholing me as a bubblegum artist kind of bothered me in the beginning, you know, because it was kind of, I didn't want to be get pigeonholed into anything because as a songwriter, I was writing all kinds of different songs. I didn't write just bubblegum songs. So, uh, but eventually I just kind of embraced it and ran with it. And that's what took me into recording Hooray for Hazel and Dizzy, you know, because I figured I might as well, do this this is seems like the what what the people want to hear from me but sh shortly after that i ended up uh writing a song with mac davis called uh, traffic jam and i that was actually released on my album called weekend to make music i recorded it in i think it was the early 70s and re released it on that album but it never was a single but i always loved the song so in this new cd that i just came out with from here to here I decided, you know, I'm going to re-record this and put it on this new CD. And I teamed up with my old pal from Orlando, Florida, Mike Franklin, uh, to produce the album for me and do all the arranging. And he loved the song, so he, he arranged it. I loved the arrangement. I always wanted to hear horns on it, and the original version I did didn't have horns. So Mike put horn section on it, and I just really loved the way it turned out. If uh, So the title of it, that uh, that that new album is is here to here correct from here to here yeah and it's kind of a transit i look at it as, as a transitional cd it's kind of taking me what what i did is i i went back and uh, i revisited um uh some of my older 
recordings, like Heather Honey. I re-recorded Heather Honey, which was the follow-up to Dizzy, which was the single that followed Dizzy in 1970. And then I re-recorded a song that I did on the Sweet Pea album called Kick Me Charlie, which was a B-side of It's Now Winter's Day in 1968. And so I revisited those two songs. Then all the other songs are, are new material that I wrote or co-wrote with other writers. And so it's, I look at it as a transi- transitional CD and from, like from the bubblegum thing into like what I'm doing now. And um, so, you know, who knows? I still love it, enjoy writing songs. And, um, you know, maybe, who knows, maybe I have one more CD in me. Who knows? I'll, I'll, I'll just keep writing and doing things that I love, and you know, until I can't do it anymore. And I, I love writing songs and working in the studio. So I'm real, I'm real excited about this CD, and it seems to be doing very well. Um, I want to. We got a couple minutes left. I want to talk a little bit. You got a book out, which I just found out about, and I believe it's titled "Cabbage Town to Tinseltown and Places in Between." Do I have the title correct? That's correct. Yeah, and um, tell us about that. Uh, it's um, you know, it's a bi- autobiography, and it takes you from my childhood up until up until now, up until the present. And what I did with this book, I didn't want to, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It's been done over and over and over again. So I wanted to do something a little different. So what I tried to do with this book is parallel the influence of the music of the 60s on our culture, our politics, our fashion. Everything changed, and it all had a lot to do with the music that was being produced during that decade. So uh, the idea of the book is to parallel that influence of the 60s uh, revolution with uh, really where we are today. It's really, it really was like a springboard to where we are today. And by and the way, uh, I want to I, I just say that you can order the new CD on solarmusic.com. Um, and, it, it, and with the new CD, there's a free download of a song that I wrote as a tribute to my late wife called My Little Josette. So solarmusic.com, you can order the new CD. How about the book? If they want to get the book, how do they go about getting that? Is that on Amazon? The book, you can, the book is in all the bookstores, Amazon.com. Uh, you can order an autographed pop, uh, copy from my website at TommyRoe.com. Okay, super. Um, real quick, too, while we were, we were talking, since this is Nostalgic Radio and Cars, um, I understand you have a uh, vintage car sitting in your garage as well. I do. I have a 1968 Camaro, 325. And uh, I tell you, I, I'll tell you how this happened. In 1968, I bought a brand new 1968 Camaro for my wife, and we had that. We loved that car. We drove it for like three years, and then when the Audis first came out in the early 70s, I was I went into the Audi dealership and I was looking at it, and I traded my 68 Camaro for this Audi. And as soon as I drove out of the lot, I thought, "What the hell did I just do?" I was so I, was, I had so such second thoughts about giving up my 68 Camaro because I love that car. And so a few years ago, I decided if I could find a really nice 68 Camaro, I'm going to buy one just just for the nostalgia effect of it. So I, I purchased this uh, 68 Camaro, and it's a jewel. It's, uh, I had it uh, refurbished and redone by a friend of mine here in Alpharetta, Georgia, American V8. He, he is a... Uh, Tech. Uh, he went to Georgia Tech. He's like a really bright guy, and he loves cars, and he loves to refurbish cars. And he refurbished it for me. And it's it's just a it's a jewel. 
Super, super. What color is it? It's it's kind of a wine. It's called uh, Burgundy wine, and it's okay. uh, it's almost a purple, but it's like more of a burgundy purple. Interesting, interesting. Well, we'll have to get pictures of that sometime with you uh, standing next to that car. We got about thirty seconds left, something like that. Tell us about uh, guitars. Are you kind of like uh, what's your what's your instrument, your guitar of choice? I have so many guitars. I don't know which one to play. <laughs> they're oh, they're okay. in the closet. They're under the closet. They're under the bed. They're in the closet everywhere. But I have a Martin uh, twenty eight that I had made for me from scratch, and uh, it's it's really a special guitar. I have the original Gibson guitar that I bought um, from Ernest Tubb Record Store in Nashville in nineteen sixty four, which I I've written all my hits on. All of my hits were written on this Gibson. Called a Gibson, the Gibson Dove. It's the first year the Gibson Dove came out in 1964, and um, it's a jewel as well. But I, I love guitars. I buy guitars and I give them to my friends, and you know, play them whenever I get a chance. Different ones. Super. Well. Tommy, we are up against the clock. I want to thank you very, very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. And it's TommyRoad.com. They can find out all the information they want and go to your website, correct? That's correct. And SolarMusic.com to order the CD. Super. Well, thank you very much. Hopefully I get to Atlanta sometime. We'll stop by and we'll say hi. Or if you get to Florida and you're doing a concert down here, we'll definitely uh, you know, get together and uh, chat for a bit. And again, I want to thank you very much for hanging out with us here at Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Have a great Sounds week. Sounds great, Robert. Sounds great. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Hey, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Don't forget, every Tuesday between 7 and 8 p.m. on the Tantalk Radio Network, you can tune in to Nostalgic Radio and Cars for the most legendary names in music and motorsports. Don't forget, this is Rocktober. we got more musicians coming this month. So... I want you guys to get out there, drive your cars, play some music, stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family.